we choose, the narrative that we tell about our history and our future. Mm-hmm. And so what the pandemic had done is to have us think about that narrative of origin mm-hmm. and therefore the narrative of future. You know, what do we think about where we at, where we come from and how these things play into one another? It's about knowing and understanding that our indigenous knowledge is actually a system of knowledge mm. that is deeply ingrained in our cultures across a variety of cultures in South Africa. Mm. And, and it comes with, with deep-seated competencies and wisdoms about nature, about ways of living, ways of being. Um, you know, that our system is, is risen with deep inequalities. Uh, the inequalities are between the institutions, uh, inequalities are between the students, between the staff, uh, and and it became clear to us that you know that there wasn't going to be an easy route, you know, to addressing uh, the challenge of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. So we had to create partnerships. That we had to get our universities to work together in concert to share resources, to share information, to. Uh, to work together in developing solutions to the big challenges we are facing. A big question going forward is um, how important is it still to have a, a formal degree mm. of three or four or five years? What about mm. micro credentialing? Mm. What about the fact that you learn on the go? The person who engages yeah. with students in smaller, intensive learning environments right. and teaches them to think critically to know how to analyze problems. Those are the kind of issues that they're going to need, sort of, um, and qualities that they're going to need to instill in our students. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Ryan Fortune. I'm your host for the second episode of the Cornerstone Critical Dialogues on Bush Radio 89.5 FM. I'm very pleased to be with you once again. Uh, This is a new partnership between Bush Radio and the Cornerstone Institute of Higher Learning in Cape Town. Uh, This evening, we're going to be taking an in-depth look, a deep dive into the issue of higher learning, the state of higher learning in South Africa and the world right now. We understand that uh, the COVID-19 pandemic has caused huge disruptions to many aspects of society, but none more so perhaps than uh, the the higher learning space where universities and colleges have been hugely disrupted and have have had to adapt their methods, their methodologies, their processes to the new reality of a global pandemic. In the studio with me this evening, I'll be having uh, an esteemed panel of guests and I'll be assisted uh, with uh, this conversation by Dr. Rudy Bass, who is in the studio with me right now. I'm going to be uh, talking to him initially, and we're going to then be going to our guests. Dr. Rudy Bass is the Executive Dean at the Cornerstone Institute. He has been uh, there since 2017, and he has uh, studied abroad. He's Prior roles include uh, the Dean of Student Affairs at Free State University, the Provincial Youth Commissioner tasked with Education 2005 to 2009, and the spokesperson of the Provincial Education Ministry. Uh, Rudy specializes in uh, public theology with a focus on community engagement in particular. And he's with me in the studio. We, we're going to be uh, 
crossing uh, later on in the show. We're going to be ca- calling in uh, Professor Ahmed Bawa, amongst others. Uh, he is the CEO of USAF, which is University South Africa, which oversees uh, 26 universities in South Africa. Uh, he's going to be on the line with us very soon. Um, Rudy, good evening. How are you? Hey, Ryan. I'm, I'm, I'm doing well in yourself. I'm very good. I'm very good. How do you feel? <laughs> it's brilliant to be with you and to be at Bush Radio. I mean, it's such a historical place to be at, so it's wonderful to be here. It's a great partnership. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So tell me, Rudy, uh, from your perspective, uh, where, where, what is the, the, the journey that Cornerstone Institute has been on over the last two years? How has the pandemic and all its uh, complications affected Cornerstone yeah. before we get to <laughs> yeah, the meat of the conversation? You know, I think that's a great question that all institutions actually have to really ask themselves. I mean, one of the key things of any higher education institution is that when you open the web page, if you will, it's web page, most likely under the about sort of tab, you will find a description of its history, you know, and then there would be sort of the, almost a typical type of thing of a, a narrative of origin, you know, where does this institution come from? And, uh, and what institutions uh, do as much as we would do as individuals or so is we choose the narrative that we tell about our history and our future. Mm-hmm. And so what the pandemic had done you know, with Cornerstone, as much as with any other institution, as much as for society at large, is to have us think about that narrative of origin mm-hmm. and therefore the narrative of future. You know, what do we think about where we're at, where we come from, and how these things play into one another? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> well, as a general point, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what happened at Cornerstone, I think, is not unique. But what did happen is that we had to really um, um, reflect on um, at least in the space of learning, um, how you know how are we becoming different as human beings mm. due to something as as major as a global pandemic? Mm. How do people think different? How do societies have to change the way we work? And therefore, what new types of or you know adjusted, if you will, knowledge projects mm. we need to undertake mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. sort of you know work mm-hmm. with? So really, so what we teach and what we learn mm. needs to shift. But that mm. you can't do that without thinking about who you are, who you want to be, where you mm. come from, mm. and where you want to go. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So a real deep period of self-reflection. Yeah, you know, the thing is, yeah. there's no point where you sit around a, a sort of a table and says, "All right, we now to deal, need to deal with these questions." Inevitably, to the experience of students and staff and the research project, and so the questions come up. But mm-hmm. something shifted. How do we make sense of that? And that raises the question. Of course, this is higher education. You have to. It's, it's about the questions all mm-hmm. the time. Mm-hmm. But it's been a very positive experience, you know, broadly speaking, in terms of rethinking what it means to be a knowledge-based institution that works with knowledge and learning and so. So tough mm-hmm. due to what people and our people, meaning students and, and, and lecturers and so forth, live through during this time. Mm-hmm. But also revitalizing in the sense of having to rethink um, questions and focus, you know. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think to nice discussion. I mean, we we're really talking to sort of high-profile thinkers in the sector, mm-hmm. who also help us to understand how to think in the sector, and mm-hmm. also for all of us around the sector that yeah. interacts. Yeah. To see what be the key questions that we should be asking, and maybe we have some answers also coming up. Yes, 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 yes. Um, I'm in the studio here with uh, Dr. Reverend Rudy Bass, who is the Executive Dean at Cornerstone Institute. And we are talking this evening 
about uh, the state of higher learning in South Africa today and broadly in the world as well. This is a very critical area of discussion. And uh, we are joined on the line by Professor Ahmed Bawa. Dr. Bawa, are you there, Professor? I am, I am. Oh, there we are. Thank you so much. Professor Bawa, um, lots of things happening in the sector. I believe uh, Yusuf recently hosted a big conference in uh, Johannesburg yeah. uh, in Pretoria. Can you, can you tell us a bit about that? What, what, what was the topic and the theme? And, and maybe that yeah. can lead on to the rest of the discussion. Uh, Professor, could I also ask, sorry, Ryan, if you could maybe just give some background around Yusuf as well for our listeners who might not be aware of the, of the organization and its yes, role within sure. the sector. Sure. Thank you. Thank you so much. And uh, first of all, let me just thank you, um, Brian, for inviting me onto the program. I, I really appreciate it. Um, so uh, let me begin with a little kind of definition of what USAF is. So USAF is Universities South Africa. It's an umbrella body of the 26 public universities. It's set up by the universities and uh, basically works on three or four very, you know, uh, broad themes. The one is... Uh, uh, it, it works on policy, so it writes policy and it kind of responds to policy that comes from government and from other sources. Um, secondly, it, uh, it does a certain amount of advocacy work, but uh, I, I suppose its main work is really to build the capacity of the universities to perform their functions in the most effective way. So uh, it has a number of strategy groups and communities of practice uh, and, uh, uh, and of course, the board is made up of the vice chancellors, so that connects the leadership with the, you know, with the uh, rank and file, if you like, of the, of the sector. Um, and then uh, finally, it has a set of uh, kind of more directed programs. One is on high education leadership development. Uh, it uh, builds kind of, uh, kind of the, uh, it builds a pipeline, if you like, for new leadership to emerge. Uh, and that's a very deliberately designed program. And then um, it has, uh, for the last three or four years, it has uh, uh, kind of uh, led the entrepreneurship development in higher education program, which was initially set up by the Department of Education Training, which is now with us. Um, so uh, those are the kind of core functions, if you like. Um, so... Uh, and now to turn to the conference, it's the second sort of high education conference that USAF has uh, convened. And this one was uh, held in partnership with the Council on Higher Education. And uh, the theme was um, the, uh, the university as an engaged institution, or it's the, the engaged university. And it really arose um, out of the kind of, you know, this enormous stress test, you know, that uh, that uh, was applied on the universities through 2015 to 2017 with the Fees Must Fall and Roads Must Fall campaigns, and then with the uh, with the COVID-19. Right? And, uh, and, and the key question that kept arising, um, you know, during this period of stress, if you like, was um, just, you know, a, a recognition uh, as to how dislocated the university system was from public ownership, if you like. Uh, these are public universities, and the big question that kept, you know, arising was, um, you know, why is the public ownership of the university system so weak? And uh, and that's something that we 
thought needed uh, to be addressed in in a very kind of uh, forthright and uh, and honest way, if you like, and and that became the theme of the conference, and uh, and it was built around a series of uh, uh, of in, you know of uh, interesting dialogues and conversations and uh, and and presentations, uh, which were largely designed by the five. Uh, key strategy groups that we had. Um, so that was the general theme, you know, the engaged university. <laughs> so, Professor, um, uh, thank you very much for that. Um, uh, I was one of your, uh, you know, participants at the conference. Great. And it's, uh, it's really, it was, um, at least as a second conference, but, uh, you know, overall it was really, really a, a, a significant engagement. I think the types of questions, the type of um, speakers, uh, facilitators, and so I really encourage uh, listeners in actual fact to just go to the USAF uh, website and just download the program. You'll just get an idea of of who's, you know, who's the who's the who's who, if you will, in the Scholarship of Higher Education. Um, so thanks for outlining that, Professor. Um, of course, you know, uh, in a sense, it's uh, it's uh, just par for the course to to talk about the impact of the pandemic. Um, uh, did you sort of find, or to what extent did you find that, uh, even if one would ask questions of, um, you know, how universities relate to an unequal society, how we sort of relate uh, in the sector to the broader transformation of society, but then there was a shift in the types of questions or themes that had come forward or had been foregrounded due to the pandemic. And I, I don't mean simply what would be the teaching and learning technicalities, you know, it was, yeah, but what yeah. the sort of fundamental questions that would be on the table? Did the pandemic really shift the reflection on these core questions of higher education? Yeah. So I would, you know, I would kind of point out to four things. I think that arose uh, in particular in 2020. Um, mm. You know, we were very. On the one hand, we felt uh, extremely concerned about uh, saving the academic year. Mm. Um, you know, uh, we thought that if we were not able to save the academic year, that the roll-on impact for students that were completing. Uh, you know, the National Senior Scientific Exam this year uh, would just be enormous. You know? mm. uh, so that became uh, a very central theme. But the moment we did that, uh, the moment we, we made that uh, kind of a, a driving uh, impetus, if you like, mm. um, what emerged almost immediately is that, um, you know, that our system is, is riven with deep inequalities. Mm. Uh, the inequalities are between the institutions uh, inequalities are between the students, between the staff, uh, and and it became clear to us that you know that there wasn't going to be an easy route, you know, to addressing uh, the challenge of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. So um, there were three or four things that emerged. The first one was just this notion that we had to be extremely careful that we didn't jeopardize. Uh, students mm-hmm. who were in uh, who were in difficult situations with regard to the kinds of interventions that universities were putting in place. Mm-hmm. So, so it was critically important that we adopted uh, what we thought of as a social justice rubric, if you like, mm-hmm. to kind of really try and ensure that students, uh, you know, every student had an opportunity, if you like, you know, to, uh, to 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 have a fair go at the at completing the academic year. Mm-hmm. 
The second uh, was just this realization that we had to work, we had to create partnerships, that we had to get our universities to work together in concert, to share resources, to share information, to, uh, to work together in developing solutions to the big challenges we were facing. Um, then there were partnerships, you know, and new kinds of partnerships with the government, uh, the kinds of partnerships we had never, you know, there's always a tension you know, between, mm. um, you know, the university sector and government. It's always about cuts in subsidy or cuts in student funding or, you know, um, uh, inroads into autonomy and things like that, you know. Mm. But uh, we, we thought we worked very hard at building uh, kind of a coherent, cohesive, uh, partnership with government. Uh, we would not have been able to do it without that. Right. And the same was true with the Council on Higher Education because, uh, you know, all this, uh, this shift to kind of, of uh, to uh, remote kind of emergency teaching and learning uh, had huge implications for quality. So mm. we had to bring in the Council on Higher Education. Mm. Mm. Uh, and then uh, finally, I should just mention and that we had to work closely with big business, you know. We had to work mm. with the mobile network operators uh, mm. to try and get them to come to the table mm. and to try and get them to ensure that, uh, you know, that data was available at a reduced rate, mm. that, uh, you know, that students had free access to university, uh, to university websites and mm. so on. Mm. Um, so, so that was the second major <clears throat> principle, I think. And then the third one, well, it's just a realization of how fragile our university system is, you know, um, uh, in terms of its long-term sustainability. Mm, mm. Um, you know, the short-term financial crisis was enormous. Mm. Of course, some universities uh, coped much better because they have deeper pockets and so on, much deeper pockets. Um, but at the same time, um, what we also realized was that the impact of COVID-19 on the economy uh, had had severe implications for the long-term sustainability of the sector. So we are grappling with those challenges now. I I, I can't help but ask, uh, Professor. Thank you for that for that sort of um, outline. Um, ask about sort of what is uh, you know apart from you know uh, through clever partnerships. Uh, you know, strengthening, if you will, the income streams from various sectors in society, from business and so to the sector. What then would be the partnerships or additional sort of options that's been, you know, in discussion, if you will, um, you know, to strengthen long-term sustainability? You know, I mean, we won't be talking about sort of less public institutions. We won't talk about the next round of, um, you know, universities being combined, uh, Institutions. Yeah. I mean, yeah. uh, you know, what's some of the ideas that's been that's been flowing uh, in the discussions? So let me mention three things because you know there, there, are, num- there are a number of them, but let me just mention three things. The, the one is uh, just this idea that we should really work very hard at building, you know, what we are calling a shared services platform. So uh, just this idea that we should really be working to build uh, teaching and learning platforms which are nationally managed, but which are accessible to all 26 universities. You know, properly kind of segregated and so on, uh, so that universities still had, universities and students still had uh, kind of the, uh, the sense that they had their own platform, but uh, actually 
uh, they wouldn't have to invest in the platform, that we would do that at national level. Uh, so developing a kind of, you know, what you might think of as a national teaching and learning platform, if you like, you know, which includes access to data and everything else. So that's the one... Um, so that's the one... Uh, the one, Even if it was uh, only that idea, it's really, really exciting. It is, it, it is. It yeah. opens so I mean, many possibilities, you know, uh, even yeah. in the context of what we understand to be the fourth industrial in the, uh, sort of exactly, revolution. Exactly. You know, so, but sorry, I've interrupted you. Yeah. yeah. Then, and, and of course, you know, it, it doesn't have to be just the universities. You know, it could also be then the TVT colleges, for example, you know. Mm. Uh, and then you can broaden that, uh, you know, broaden that to other kinds of institutions. So that's the first the first thing. And of course, in that shared services platform, you can think about administrative systems. You can think about, uh, you know, uh, universities coming together uh, and, um, and, and, and pooling their resources in terms of the software design and so on and so forth. So that becomes, well, that's the one kind of idea. The second kind of major idea was the idea of, you know, now that we've really, there's been so much of investment and so much of uh, skills kind of developed in the in virtual teaching and learning, although we still have a long way to go. Uh, but just the idea that we can now start thinking about uh, co-offering degrees, you know, co-offering programs, that we could think about University of Limpopo and University of Johannesburg, sort of, uh, University of Johannesburg, sort of co-offering a program uh, on uh, whatever it could be. That could be, in particular, where we have a shortage of uh, of. of of um, a shortage of skills, you know, where we have a, um, a deficit of uh, of capacity, if you like, to teach. Right? Uh, so that you know that kind of discussion uh, can now take place. And the one discussion we're having with the Department of Education and Training uh, is the possibility of some funding that will be committed to this kind of partnership building. That's a very direct uh, kind of input. Both of these, by the way, the shared service platform and this. Uh, could be one way of addressing the uh, the, the huge um, inequities in our system. Um, and then third was you know was just really getting our universities to uh, to understand that we can we can do much more by aggregating resources uh, than not. So let me give you one example. I mean, uh, at the moment, each university uh, contributes to uh, to to its journal uh, subscriptions. Hugely expensive. We spend about 600 million rand a year on journal subscriptions. Now, the one thing we could do is we could we could aggregate those resources and strike a national deal with the publishers rather than have uh, each institution uh, kind of do that. And what that would do is then provide access to uh, to those journal holdings um, in the, uh, to to the entire sector and to to the broader community, if you like. So, um, so it's that those kinds of uh, of ideas that are on the table at the moment. Professor, um, I, don't, I don't mean to be testy, um, yeah. but you know, you know, as sort of in in uh, often you find students or uh, uh, you know students who apply or want to apply, 
you know, reflecting on which institution is the best. Yeah. You know, um, yeah. of course, that, that goes along with affordability and all those type of questions yeah. and whether there's access to NSFAS or whatever other sort of scholarship yeah. Yeah. there might be. But I, I want to go to the one that I think is best. Uh, in these proposals that, that's on the table, doesn't that sort of, you know, risk, you know, what would be uh, one what considered sort of a healthy competition between institutions? Yeah, well, I think that that's a, that's a very good question. And I, I, and I think the way to answer that would be to say that, you know, a university of, let's just, let's just take the University of Johannesburg. The University of Johannesburg graduates, um, you know, will, will be, you know, will by the University of Johannesburg be expected to have a certain, a certain layer of graduate attributes, if you like, yeah? uh, and And that has to be built into program design, it has to be built into student experience, uh, it has to be built into the way that the academics are, and the, uh, are, are, are geared for their teaching, uh, you know, for their teaching enterprises and so on. And each university, I think, has to focus on that. And I, and I have to say, you know, that, you know, I think we will all agree that, you know, the, the bulk of the learning that happens at universities doesn't happen in the classroom here. It happens in what you might think of as the second second curriculum, the stuff that happens outside the classrooms. Um, so, you know, so so I I think that you know uh, producing a shared services platform and so on doesn't negate the capacity of universities to innovate and to uh, to to sharpen their kind of uh, 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 their kind of commitments to building. Uh, graduate attributes that they would see as being uh, 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 distinctive of that institution, if you like. Yeah. I don't know if that helps. Yeah, no, absolutely, Professor. And I must, say, as I said, I'm I'm uh, I'm a bit tongue in cheek with with that particular question, because each institution is is really unique in terms of its location, in terms of its history, in terms of its sort of you know feeder communities, if you will. So as much as we have similar sort of purposes and goals and so across the sector, you know, there's unique sort of perspectives that come within each institution and the collectives and communities that that's part of that institution or the broader institution then. So, but I really appreciate the fact that you raise graduate attributes um, um, as a key point. I'm not sure to what extent um, the notion of graduate attributes is sort of alive in the minds of of families and communities yeah. when they yeah. think of entering higher education. I think it's worthwhile that you've referred to that and that we could just indicate and say, but that, you know, or remind uh, our listeners that, you know, there's been a shift that, you know, uh, the perspective on students joining institutions aren't simply any longer about the sort of piece of paper, the qualification, and even then the skills for your profession that you walk away with. It's really about who you are and who you've become as a citizen, as an individual, as a engaged part of the society, you know. And that is often what we, you know, refer to in brief, at least when we say we're trying to build attributes for the graduates that leave the institution. And so the decision to a large extent is based on, or in a sense our argument is in the sector should be based on looking at who will I become at this institution and therefore joining this institution. Now the question is, did that change? During this pandemic, and I think that underlies of much much of what you've what yeah. you've shared with us now. You know, I, I would argue, Professor, and I'd like to ask you like to ask you know your comment on it, and 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 that is to say that you know the pandemic had such a fundamental impact 
on on how we go about what we consider to be the normal business of our education. That fundamentally our understanding of self had entered a new epoch, if you will, a new timeline in a sense, and we can't really step back from that. There's no uh, there's there's no normal to step back to, uh, and I don't want to use the words new normal, you know, but uh, we're in a completely new space. Um, so what would you what would you say? Um, you know, to that perspective, um, is there something to go back to? Uh, is it something that we need to grab a hold of to say there's, there's a whole new possibilities of designing new ways of engagement? I mean, yeah. apart from only sort of virtual uh, learning and teaching, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, how could we think different about that? Now, what, what, and just to sort of close my question is, uh, you know, I, I really appreciate that you, that you had drawn this, this rethink of our education, uh, further than only the pandemic, but also, you know, to, to the, uh, you know, student movements work over the past five, six years. I think yeah. that's a precise, uh, description of where the rethink actually started. Um, but anyway, so, uh, you know, how should we be thinking different of the, of our place within society? You know, what is in our future in the questions that we ask? Yeah, you know, uh, the, the one thing that's completely clear is that there isn't going to be, there isn't going to be a reversal to sort of the traditional face-to-face kind of lectures. You know, I mean, I, there, but there will be a reverse. There will be a return to face-to-face engagement. I, I think what you're going to see at our university is a, is a much more substantial use of technology in what you might think of as kind of um, as kind of mixed learning or blended learning. You know, uh, where uh, students will be expected to engage materials, uh, you know, more effectively on uh, on devices uh, via the web, uh, and where the face-to-face engagements will really be intensive tutorials, you know, um, much more kind of uh, intensive learning, and very likely a small group kind of uh, small group uh, 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 engagements, if you like. So a return to much more intensive learning, it seems to me. Um, and, and I think that, um, you know, that has the possibility of unleashing a much more active learning, if you like, you know, on the, on the part of students. Um, so that's, I think, the one, and, and I think most universities are now uh, contemplating, you know, the, uh, what the new normal would look like, you know, just uh, in terms of the use of technology. So that's the one point. Um, the second point is, um, I think, you know, it's become patently clear, you know, that we have to pay much more attention to the way in which universities design what I referred to earlier as a second curriculum. That just, uh, you know, ensuring that student experience on campuses, student uh, engagement on campuses, their exposure to, uh, you know, the grand challenges facing our society, through, uh, through engagement with external parties and so on, that that's going to become much more, uh, much more intensive, it seems to me, as we head into the future. And, and I think that it, it ties in, you know, with the notion of uh, decolonizing education. I mean, this idea of, of uh, trying to ensure that, um, uh, that, uh, that, that, the, that the overall curriculum at our universities speak much more to the local context, if you like. When I say local context, I don't mean the local town or, you know, the local community, but I, I mean sort of a set of concentric circles, you know, starting with the, 
you know, with the communities around the campus and then going out from there. Um, uh, but understanding, in fact, that uh, decolonization is not just simply about new texts and so on, but it is in, ter- it is in fact about uh, re, you know, reconceptualizing the knowledge project uh, vis-a-vis the local and the global, if you like. Um, uh, so, so I think that you know, those are the ideas, I think, that, that are now kind of taking root at our universities. Now, I'm not suggesting you know, that this doesn't have to do, that decolonization doesn't have to do with ensuring that, uh, you know, that there's a transformation in the nature of our curricula and what goes on in the classrooms and making sure that there's epistemic access and so on. But I think that that's only a part of the story. I think uh, it's a much bigger story than that. Lisa, um, your your comments are, you know, if I if you allow me, uh, you know, you know, um, um, you know, are music to my ears, if you will. Um, especially when you refer to the second curriculum, and uh, we have to have to break. But you know, you 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 put out these extremely exciting ideas. You know, your reference to the second curriculum, I think, is worthwhile for our conversation to just also touch on as a particular matter. You know, um, uh, referring to what is often also called the co-curriculum. Yes. And historically had then been sort of the out of class experience of, you know, experiential curriculum and so forth. But the point being, everything that a student lives through outside the classroom and even within the classroom, which is not the formal teaching or the formal curriculum work, all of that represents learning material, if you will, to, 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 to oversimplify it. And, and what we, that I know we've done in the sector of the past reason, I think, and, and, and I know while you were leading at DUT as vice chancellor, you had played a major role yes. in building that program there as well, sure. is in the co-curriculum program to actually be intentional about what are the experiences that students are engaged with, you know, whether on their own, in, in residences or, you know, at, 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 you know, wherever it might be, that ties into our formal points of reflection. This one curriculum I would like to add to that, Professor, and, and, and that is the notion of the hidden curriculum. And, and that's the things that, that, that our students, our colleagues learn in what they observe without realizing and not reflecting intentionally about those observations. What paintings are against the walls, you know, what statues are on what campuses, if you will. Um, and those type of things that the student movement had foregrounded for us over the past few years. So it's these three curriculums that play together. And it's such a worthwhile point to make because it shows that our universities engage much more than simply the technical curriculum to gain a particular qualification. Um, and, but the question that remains, how did, how will the walls of the corridors of the, of the campus building change? Now that we know all of this and essentially, theoretically, the walls of our thinking had been opened. The, you know, had the borders had been pulled away or down, if you will, due to the pandemic. So um, I'm, I'm discussing it with you. Um, but do you think it's possible in a more virtual world to really direct something like a second curriculum? I mean, aren't we sort of, uh, you know, being um, too hopeful about directing everything as we used to in the in the sector? Yeah, look, uh, you know, the, the interesting thing about the co-curriculum, like or the second curriculum, is just the fact that it has to be co-created, you know, between the university and students. Mm. You know, I, I think the university has to create the, you know, create the, um, it has to design itself in such a way that that second curriculum uh, becomes a co-creation between the university and 
and students. I mean, just to give you an example, I mean, you know, uh, you know, uh, the, the the transformation, the transformation of the student body at DUT or at UKZN uh, uh, resulted in uh, the complete decline of cricket uh, <laughs> at those institutions and the rise of rugby, you know. Uh, at those institutions, uh, simply because the student body had changed. Uh, mm. Now, you know, uh, of course, there was a there was a dogged attempt by those universities to actually keep the cricket fields, and you know, and uh, you know, and they're they really expensive to keep, you know, uh, 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 and to uh, ensure that you know the coaches were there and employed, and so on and so forth. You know, mm. uh, but actually, um, you know, students. The transformation in the student body just has its own dynamics, if you like, on the way in which that second curriculum is shaped. Right? Yeah. Mm, mm. Uh, so, uh, so it's this idea of saying, you know, that uh, universities also have to take a deep breath and uh, understand how to design themselves uh, around, uh, you know, around the the needs and the challenges and the growth of. Uh, they're current students, you know, mm. not the students that used to come there, you know. Yeah, no, but you see, it's, a, it's, it's easier to shift to rugby these days because you have Sia as the captain and you win all <laughs> exactly, the place, you exactly. know, and we struggle a little bit with our kicker teams, but, uh, yeah, you know, let's exactly. not comment on that now. Yeah. Professor, thank you very much. Uh, we have to take a break now and, sure. um, and uh, we'll have to let you go for a moment and we might pick up with you again later uh, over the next hour and a half or so. But thank you very much for your frank comments and the direction that you really provided for us. And, and sure. we wish you well with your work at Yousaf. Uh, you do thank incredible you. work you. and we know of that work. So thank you for that. Thank you so much. Yes, talking the state of higher learning in South Africa and around the world with Professor Ahmed Bawa of the USAF University South Africa that uh, is the body that oversees and works with uh, 26 universities and Institute of Higher Learning in South Africa. And we are talking the pulse of higher education, taking the pulse of higher education in South Africa and worldwide. In the studio with me this evening is uh, the Reverend Dr. Rudy Bass, the Executive Dean at Cornerstone Institute, and we were talking for earlier on for uh, learning uh, about the, the, an overview of the state of things at this point from uh, Professor Ahmed Bawa, the CEO of the uh, USAF, Uni- Universities South Africa. Joining us on the line now is uh, Professor Loretta Ferris, who is uh, used to be the Vice-Chancellor at UCT until recently, and uh, she is going to be uh, in the hot seat with uh, Dr. Rudy Bass uh, asking the questions. Uh, Professor Ferris, are you there? Um, hi, good evening. Hi, Ryan. Hi, um, Rudy. It's so lovely to join you this evening. Yeah, I have to uh, congratulate you on this collaboration. I think it's a wonderful idea. Thank you very much, Loretta, and it's wonderful to hear your voices. Well, um, for the listeners, I've I've had the privilege of uh, of working with uh, uh, Professor Ferris uh, for a bit, um, and uh, she might not say so, but she's been a a key role player in much of the uh, project for 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 significant change. Uh, at uh, at UCT, and uh, we want to thank you for that work, Doretta. You've uh, and uh, we we're aware of that work, and we appreciate that work, and um, 
and uh, we'll we'll honor that work as we as we continue. Um, Let's just for for, for thank, the listeners. Thank you, Rudy. Yeah, for the listeners' sake, you now um, you've returned to your your first love, if I may, as a professor of law. Um, just share with the listeners what what's your particular interest, uh, your field of interest. What what are you focusing your 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 scholarship on uh, in law at this at this point? So yes, Rudy, um, I've been a, a law professor really for, for the bulk of my life and, and then I have uh, have been briefly in, in higher education management um, and I'm now back as an academic. My focus is environmental law um, and I sort of work at this intersection between human rights and the environment. Mm, and mm. so I look at uh, a variety of issues. For example, right now I'm, I'm looking at indigenous knowledge systems and, mm. and ways in which it, it relates to the environment and ways in which we need to protect our indigenous knowledge systems, which is very much linked mm. to the issue of decolonization mm. that Professor Bauer talked about earlier mm. on. Mm. You know, it's, it's about knowing and understanding that our indigenous knowledge is actually a system of knowledge mm. that is deeply ingrained in our cultures across a variety of cultures in South Africa. Mm. And, and it comes with, with deep-seated competencies and wisdoms about nature, about ways of living, ways of being. Um, and, mm. and I've looked for many years at how do we protect those forms of, of mm. knowledge um, from a legal point of view. But I'm also looking now more specifically at how can those um, systems inform, um, for example, how can it inform climate change? Right. Um, for example, how can traditional medicines inform current health practice? Mm, mm, mm. Yeah, and it's a it's a it's a major debate, I would argue. You know, um, for all institutions, not only if, you know in the broad generic sense of, if you will, uh, a decolonization project, but the very real lived experience of students and and academics as part of an institution. Um, um, so, I, in a sense, I'm very thankful that you bring up the notion of decolonization and how that relates to the knowledge project, because that's one of the things I wanted to sort of uh, ask you about as we reflecting. Um, on higher education not only over the past few years but also to the future and how we supposed to, not supposed to but how we intend to rethink higher education in the country um, is what do you you know what do you think would be the main areas of of work that one would work with, I mean you, you led transformation at, at, at your institution in a major way um, and to a large extent, also the teaching and learning shifts that I, I, I know must, must take place at all institutions. But, uh, you know, within that context, apart from the knowledge work that would happen within a faculty, what would be the other areas of, of decolonization? Our UCT has been in the news, of course, with the Rose Must Fall movement, uh, with the, you know, um, and then the fees must fall, and it played a leadership role uh, on a national level uh, in that regard. But Outside of or in addition or next to or in conjunction with those, those symbolic mm. battles, if you will, um, with, with, uh, with uh, the remnants, if you have, of, of decolonized knowledge systems, um, uh, what, would you, what would you advise institutions to focus on um, in the broad transformation project? 
Yeah, you know, I I think first of all that we we shouldn't see transformation as something separate, something distinct to the core areas of of focus for any university or any institution of higher learning, which is in essence teaching and research. And we should really see transformation as integrated into our research projects, our mm. teaching projects. And so decolonization, for example, is part of that. You know, we, we have to think very deeply about what we teach, of course, our curriculum, our course design. But also we also need to think about who teaches. Mm. You know, um, and and with who teaches, I'm not actually only talking about, you know, is it the white professor or the black professor? Mm. I'm also thinking that we should actually bring the auntie from the flats into our classroom, you know? Mm. We we should see people around us as, as people with competencies. You know, they may not have an education, but they may have competencies that will enhance our classrooms. I have goosebumps, yeah. but uh, you're, you're very exciting. I'm not um, interrupting. I'm just saying I'm 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 I'm, I'm riot. <laughs> professor Professor Ferris, yeah, that's a very interesting idea. I mean, uh, imagine the auntie from the the flats coming to teach in Afrikaans. Which, uh, you know, which at this point is a, still a contested language, it seems, whether it's indigenous or not. Um, and I, 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 it's, it's very interesting for me because a few years ago I, I attended a talk by uh, Mahmoud Mamdani where he uh, basically surprised everyone, uh, you know, even the, the sort of fees must fall, uh, uh, students who were at the, at the, the campus. I don't know if you were there at that talk where he basically said that uh, Afrikaans mm. was the biggest process of decolonization in the history of South Africa, you know, the, the, the mm-hmm, way that the, mm-hmm. the, the Afrikaners formalized Afrikaans and separated from Dutch and, and all of that. And it doesn't seem that that message has gotten through to the higher authorities. <laughs> No, well, I mean, I mean that's a very interesting and actually different debate about Afrikaans. Mm. But but so so but let's take that example. You know, I'm I'm from the Northern Cape originally, and I would love for 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 my students to actually hear from one of the. I've I've recently been been interviewing women in the Makwaland who have been practicing as midwives. Mm. All of their lives, and, and I would love for the for the ninety four year old Aunt Katrina to come and talk to my students, and and actually speak to the second curriculum, right? That mm. that Professor Bawa and Rudy talked about. Mm. So I would want Aunt, Aunt Katrina to come and talk in Afrikaans um, to students who may not ever have learned Afrikaans, but to hear this black woman speak Afrikaans, it's the, it's the way she's grown up, it's, it's, it's the language in which she dreams, it's the language in which she practices as a midwife, and she speaks it so beautifully. And to speak about her experience and to speak about her resilience as a human being, mm-hmm. you know, and, and her ability to have trained herself the skill you know, which she has learned from her grandmother, um, and and which she has not not just it's a it's a skill she's learned, but it's also a skill that she has adapted over time. You know, having having um, learned and and taught herself. 
you know it's it's actually quite amazing i'm very excited about this idea of mm. of indigenous knowledge systems and and how underutilized it is mm. I, I in a sense i'm you know ryan thank you for raising sort of language um because i mean we know that sort of language would be the medium that we swim in um you know uh in the knowledge project broadly what i really find interesting is to ask the question to what extent the way that universities higher education institutions deal with language and languages uh both as modes of instruction you know what language we use to teach and learn but also the, the language that's you know in the corridors and on campus and on the sport field and 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 how free that space in actual fact would be the idea would be that how institutions deal with that in actual fact facilitates access for the you know for for the anti from you know from a local community to come and teach on campus and whether there's mm-hmm. really space for that what would you say um professor um in terms of how institutions um increasingly seem to go for sort of english as an international access point uh you know especially as we enter the virtual world much more so due to covid um is it an unrealistic expectation to think that different language communities would gain equal access to to higher education i i think there are different ways in which we can actually have diversity and inclusion when it comes to languages um i i, I think Equal, you know, when when you talk about the fact that that increasingly we have English as kind of the language that opens up access, I think that makes it very difficult to argue for, say, for example, an, an Afrikaans-only institution or even a Tosa-only institution. But but I don't think that that necessarily closes the door for mm. all our other languages. Mm. So what we, for example, done at at UCT over the last few years. is in our residences so so part of what under my portfolio was student affairs so i was responsible for for residences and also to the academic life within residences and what we've done is we have set up tutorial um groups in residences but but mother tongue the re- uh, tutorial groups so we would for example have a math tutor that teach that tutors math in zulu and zulu speaking students could could access that so you know that's just one example of 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 doing it another example is uh, many institutions are now saying you know if you want to write your phd dissertation for example in your native language so you may have done you may have gone um through your your undergraduate degrees in in english but you now want to write your phd in in isikosa um you can do so you know if you have a supervisor and if you can have external examiners that can examine that um thesis then you're free to do so 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 we're beginning to to find ways to to open up the access for 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 our different languages to almost kind of um relive its its academic re- relevance and and in doing so i i think we may be able to to bring some of these languages afrikaans zulu kosa back into academia whilst english may still be the the kind of dominant language but it doesn't mean that that other languages have to die as an academic language and can i just 
just maybe one add one third example is that um, in a number of, of, of faculties and in at UCT we we started a process of actually having um, multilingual dictionaries of terms. You know, so so you would have as in uh, um, for example have in in the science faculty you would have a dictionary. Of, of the terms that are used predominantly in science in other languages, such as Kosa, for example. And I mean, what, what is exciting about that is that in actual fact, if you open the design process of solutions for access, um, you know, to more than only some offices or some desks or some stakeholders, you actually find this wealth of ideas that makes it possible um, to have those changes affected and to have people access. What I appreciate Absolutely. in what you're saying is that that much of uh, what much of how I hear you talk about this um, tells me about an increasing drive at our institutions to be closer to the people, if I could sort of put it in that language, to be much more engaged with the real life of where students and lecturers also, but to a large extent where students actually live, where they actually come from, what their daily lives look like. Um, and so one question that, that you know, comes to mind when you think about the lived experience of students at this point is, is whether we will see a shift in what the student movement would demand, would push the sector to, uh, what would be the type of issues and questions that the student movement will now raise in higher education, now that we live in this COVID world, if you will, now that we've come to the struggle of what COVID presents our communities with. So in a sense, one could say, how, how would the student movement's engagement change because the actual lived experience of our students might well have changed dramatically due to the pandemic and all its impact, you know, uh, unemployment, uh, greater inequality, all those type of issues that results from a pandemic such as this. How do you think with the student movement possibly change in its engagement uh, for where things are at? Yeah, you know, it's it's been quite interesting to watch the student movement trying to to almost adapt to this new reality, right? Mm. So, so I mean, I've I've lived through the, the through the student protest of of the last um, six seven years, um, and and it was interesting during the the lockdown. There there was an attempt last year by by the students to to have a protest. And and all of a sudden, you know, there was nothing to shut down. You mm. know, the classes, the, you know, classrooms were empty. Mm. Um, so 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 at one point, students occupied a building, and they said, you know, we will not be moved. And we were, as management, we were thinking, well, you know, it's okay. <laughs> you know, we 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 don't need you That's to move right. because yeah. we're not using the building. And I mm. think. They soon mm. realized, you know, mm. we, we will have to rethink uh, right. different ways of, of activating students, of getting mm. students involved of, mm. in, in, because, you know, protest in a way, I mean, I'm probably going to make a, a very controversial statement here, but I, but I think in, in the life of a student, in the life of a young person, the, the notion of activism, I think, is actually quite an important one. Mm. I mean, it's, it's mm. not great when you're sort of facing the student protest, but I mm. think it's actually 
good for students to be activists, mm. you know. Yeah. I, I don't think violent protest is a good thing, but I think activism is is an is a important part of a democracy. Mm. Yeah. And, 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 and so I, I think, you know, that, that the, the issues will largely remain the same, really. You know, I, I think the issues of inequality will remain the same. But it is the, the challenge of getting students to to actually rise up to participate and 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 students may actually also go more virtual, you know, in in their attempts to engage students. Isn't it? Uh, isn't only isn't only the the rich students who have access to resources that really will gain the benefit in the virtual world of learning and teaching? I think that's still our greatest challenge, you know, um, not just in South Africa, but I think across the world is the, the kind of digital equity gap, if one can call it that. Um, because we've, we've seen that it is in, indeed the students, not just the students, but also the universities, um, as Professor Bawa has said, um, whose pockets are not that deep, who, who really struggle to get students to be able to, to, to have digital online learning or emergency remote learning because they didn't have access to devices or access to, to data. And, and as a university with a deeper pocket, which is UCT, we were able to provide students with, with devices and with data but even where we de- where we provided those devices, students often their, their personal circumstances mm. were such mm. that they were not able to learn because you know they live in a household where there are seven other people living in a two ha- two um, room shack, for example. Or they live in a really rem- remote rural area where there is no electricity. So we really have come to understand that in order for students to really benefit from digital learning, they actually have to be resident at the university. And so we started returning students to the campus um, as as much as we could under the lockdown levels and as as much as it it allowed us to. And, And I think we're now at a point where... I think going forward, there will be more of a hybrid system, as Professor Bawa has said. But I think a fundamental element of that will have to be that we have students resident at universities in order to benefit from that kind of digital learning. It's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting debate, if you will. Um, around uh, remote learning, you know, or then multimodal, you know, the mix of virtual and and face to face, and is is the debate around, you know, which provides greater access, you know, um, when you go online, just sort of to oversimplify, if you will. You know, some of our students won't be able to access, you know, teaching and learning as fully as others would be able to due to sort of access to resources or not. When we talk about sort of on-campus residency, we don't have sufficient residences in the country to actually house the number of students uh, that we have um, within the system. And so whichever way you actually develop and respond to the current realities, there's compromises to be made continuously. What, what do we do in a sector 
with those compromises. It compromises that 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 you know might well um, be the mediator of continuous conflict, and not only by mm. protest through the student movement, but you know uh, th- through various political structures, if you will, through state uh, mechanisms, uh, sector sort of engagement. But you know, with those compromises, you know, in a sense, that seems to be a reality for the foreseeable future. Um, what do we do with that? How do we, you know, one could say that's an indicator of how deep change uh, in actual fact is affecting the sector and which is, a, 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 you know, a high time, if you would, you would say so. But, um, um, but still, you know, is that something that we, that we able to sustain? We'll be able to, you know, continue with uh, the deep knowledge projects that we want to for our continent uh, with, you know, this type of struggle that we're in. What do we do with this? Uh, I know it's a broad question, but what would you comment mm. on that difficulty that 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 we face uh, in our country? Yeah, I think fundamentally it's a it's a difficult of finances, right? It's mm. a difficult of funding that you are alluding to, and and I think that operates at two levels. On the one hand, it's the affordability of higher education, and we know that students have been struggling around this issue for a number of years. And, and we had a little bit of a, um, a, a moment in 2017 where, where NISFAS expanded and, and more students were funded. But NISFAS is, is clawing back on that. Um, it has already dropped quite a number of programs that will no longer be funded by, by NISFAS. So, so that is, is also going away. And then the second problem is that universities themselves, the, the public universities of the, um, in particular, that their funding is increasingly being cut. Mm. Um, and, and so it, in a moment where there is this opportunity to actually move forward from, from what we have seen in, in the pandemic, the ability to, to actually have a take-up of digital learning and an mm. online learning platform, we actually don't have the money to invest sufficiently. Mm. In, in that, um, and and so I think it, it does prevent, provide a moment of of crisis, but perhaps also a moment of of innovation for us. Mm. Um, I mean, I like the idea that that Professor Bawa has has mentioned, and um, it, and I'm sure when Martin Wistason comes on later, he will actually say to you that that all three of those. Um, ideas that Professor Bauer put on the table are ideas that, that that's already taken up by Czech, you know, mm. that the four institutions of which UCT is part of Czech has already, you know, we have shared services in our, in our um, libraries. We have um, not a degree, but we have uh, a diploma across mm. three of the universities. We've been aggregating our resources. Mm. So it is very much possible, you know, um, and as a sector, I think we're going to have to look at that. Mm. In addition, I really think that um, private sector should come to the party in ways that it actually used to in the past, you know? You know, Ruby, mm. we, we um, had, I think, many more scholarships Mm. You know, that was funded by companies, by mining companies, for example, you know, by financial companies, financial institutions. Mm. 
I think that these kinds of institutions will, will have to come to the party and, and we should look at public-private partnerships. And, and I know that there's, there's some people will say, well, you know, already we have, we have sort of this drive towards capitalism, you know, and, and it's not good for public education. But I think the reality is that we, we're going to have to involve private um, companies in, in, the, in the public education sector much more aggressively. Do you think there's, uh, to what extent do you think there's, there's opportunity for us, you know, at least say in SADC or continentally, but, you know, what possibilities do you think there might be, would you sense uh, there would be in international collaborations, you know, in the same way that you would aggregate, you know, <laughs> resources mm. across various institutions? Is it possible? I mean, it's just off the cuff an idea that, mm. that, that sort of come up is, is you know, within SADC. I mean, there would be both public and private institutions across this sort of SADC countries and the region that would be able to share. Um, has, has that been explored, those options uh, that you're aware of? Or I'm sure there must be some technical uh, group that already, uh, you know, investigates the options. But, uh, but what are the real potential if we explore that direction for solutions? You know, I, I I think there's some real opportunities, and especially in the in the context of digital learning, mm. um, there, there's I, I don't think we've really looked into into those kinds of partnerships sufficiently. Um, in on the research side, we, we have wonderful collaborations mm. across the continent. I'm not just talking about Southern Africa, but I'm actually talking about um, continent wide. But but I think when it comes to teaching and learning, that is still an area that remains underexplored. Um, there's some collaboration in the postgraduate sector, but when it comes to undergraduate teaching, we've we've done very little. I know that um, University of Pretoria, University of the Western Cape, um, they have some wonderful collaborations uh, across the continent. Um, but they really kind of, um, you know, the exception rather than the rule. So, so uh, yeah, I mean, I'm not answering very specifically, but I, I agree with you. I think that is an area that we can probably explore in much more detail. No, I, I really think sort of, you know, the thought you share is, is uh, you know, I find, you know, precise in terms of what, you know, avenues it seems the sector already has available to leverage for international, uh, you know, support and and resources and sharing and so, but the point I think is 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 well made um, that we're not, you know, it seems to me that we're not yet considering our problems uh, to find solutions also necessarily, you know, with others across the continent. We, you know, we might think there's lessons to learn, you know, from Kenya or Ghana or Egypt or where it might be. Uh, but we're not, we've seeming not yet developed those partnerships strong enough to have a combined solution. Anyways, I, I suppose, uh, Professor, that, um, that, uh, with, when COVID is real, and all the sort of known problems that we struggle with in the sector suddenly are much more prominent. Um, inevitably, we'll have to find those solutions and look for different partners. Um, what would be your thoughts on that? No, I absolutely agree. You know, I think we, we actually undervalue as South Africans the fact that we are part of a continent that is, in essence, a young continent 
Um, it's an it's a continent with immense opportunity. You know, um, in in a few years' time, in a well, let's let's say in a few decades' time, um, the continents such as Europe, for example, um, even North America to some extent, they're going to struggle with an aging population, um, and and here we are with a, a young population in Africa that if we really begin to think of education as a way to actually catapult the, the continent, we in South Africa are uniquely situated because we have the resources. And, and I think we can take the lead in, in going into um, other countries on our continent and beginning to look at innovation that's already happening and and actually use our resources to kind of leverage that and to and to take it further. So so I definitely think that that is that remains an area that is ripe with potential. The cornerstone critical dialogue, the second episode, we are talking about higher education in South Africa and worldwide. We've had some very in depth discussion earlier on with Professor Ahmed Bawa of USAF, and just now with Professor Loretta Ferris. We're still on the line with us uh, for uh, a little bit, and uh, we're just going to. Close off with that, uh, Rudy. Professor, thank you very much again for participating. I, you know, I, as I listen to you, I, I can't help but ask myself, if, uh, if I had to ask you to inspire me as a worker in higher education, as someone in, you know, who has the privilege of engaging on, on sort of attempts at knowledge and all sort of the flaws of that and all the excitement of that and, and all those things. What would you, how would you inspire me at this time? I mean, we really face challenges. Our students face dramatic challenges. You know, we, I, you know, I'm, I'm a great teacher in class, but yo, if you have to have me teach on online and virtual, suddenly I struggle and my students get angry at me, you know, and, you know, I mean, these real struggles that I live with as, as, you know, for argument's sake, as a lecturer. And as a student, how do I push through this time and adapt and and adjust to this new environment? How would you inspire me to continue at this time? What would you say? Um, well, thanks for that question. You know, over the last few years, I've I've worked with students quite closely. I mean, as a lecturer, you 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 have students in your class, but in my capacity as the as the deputy vice chancellor responsible for student affairs, I had to work with student leaders, and they have inspired me immensely. I've I've worked with them in different capacity, you know, at the SRC or or in in various faculties, the faculty leadership in the residences, the residence leadership. Um, and in sporting, um, in, in the different sporting codes, I sat on the on the sport council with the students, and I will say to you that the future of this country is in good hands. Mm. Mm. Our students are absolutely amazing. They are competent. They are innovative. They are entrepreneurial, including social entrepreneurship. Mm. They really care about society, about social engagement. And and these are our future leaders. Mm. And, and yes, they are struggling. They are, we are all struggling. Um, many students actually say, you know, we, we need technology. We love technology, but we also want to engage with our lecturers and we want to engage face-to-face. 
So, so that for me is also wonderful because it means that even though this is a generation that, you know, we often complain that they are too, you know, um, connected to their devices, they actually are now saying, um, and this is what a survey shows, you know, that they are saying we, we, we want uh, engagement, we want to, to see people, we want to be with people, with our fellow students and, and with our lecturers. And so, you know, I, I think we have, and that's maybe my final thought, is that if we think of our students as the future leaders of this country, I have worked with really amazing students. I, I I feel very assured, you know, that, that we are um, educating a core group of excellent leaders in, in various areas, you know. Um, I hope some of them will go into politics <laughs> because I think our politics needs some good leadership, but certainly in other areas, you know, in the different professions that they will be um, ending up in. Well, that really inspires me. It says all we, all we need... We already have. It's about, you know, really focusing on, the, you know, how brilliant um, our students are and what they bring to the table as a new generation. You know, what strikes me in what you say is the relationships, our people is what's rich about our country. Um, and and uh, so I think was it Steve Biko who's well quoted to have said that Africa will give the world a more human face. Mm-hmm. And I, I hear that mm-hmm. you're saying. And thank you for that word of inspiration. Professor, we wish you well with your work. Um, it's brilliant to talk to you. Thank you for your time. Um, yeah, Ryan, I think I think Thank we you, need Professor. To yes. Thank you, Professor. Thank you, Thank you so much for being me. on the show. Uh, that was, I mean, we could be sitting here for hours just talking and, and, and lollygagging and, and going on. But I think it's fantastic that you, that you, that you gave us those insights and we look forward to possibly speaking to you on another occasion, uh, in the future around uh, certain other topics of which you are a, a special, a specialist in. Uh, thank thank you. you so much. Thanks for having me. Right now, we're crossing to uh, Professor uh, Martin Oosthuizen. Professor, can you hear me? Are you there, Professor? Yes, I'm yes. here. Yes, oh, sorry. Yes, my, my, it's all my my fault in the studio. I'm still getting getting the hang of everything over here, but uh, okay. yeah, we have you now. Uh, yeah. yeah. So you've been listening to the conversation we've been having so far, uh, I believe. I have. I have. Yes, yes I have. Um, yes, very very interesting conversation. Okay, so I'm going to hand you over yeah. to Doctor Base now. Uh, he'll ca- he'll take it from here. Hello, Professor. Okay. It's, thank uh, you. Thank you. Wonderful to have you in the conversation, and thank you for agreeing to participate and then spending the time listening through the whole program. Program. Yes, um, fine. Good evening, Rudy. I wanted to ask you to give, an, uh, give us an introduction to the consortium and what it does in support of institutions in the province. Um, the Cape High Education Consortium is a consortium of the four public universities in the Western Cape. That's um, UCT, University of Western Cape, the Cape Peninsula University of Technology, and Stellenbosch University. Um, it has been around now for... Um, 27 years, um, so it has a very long history of um, promoting um, partnerships and collaboration between the four public universities um, in the Western Cape. And um, it, it had its origins um, really, um, you know, in the, in the um, mid-1990s with the um, dawning of democracy and the realization that um, 
universities need to work together um, to develop a new high education system. Um, and that there was a lot of um, um, value in collaboration. Mm. Originally, um, there was a very strong focus on um, what uh, uh, what Ahmed was talking about earlier on about shared resources, mm. um, shared library systems, and so on. Um, and then over the past um, 15 years or so, um, there's been a much stronger focus on um, partnerships with Western Cape government, with the city of Cape Town, um, to work together to um, create um, or, or to develop the Western Cape as a learning region and a mm. learning province. So I would say that um, currently um, a large focus of Czech's work is on um, facilitating the collaboration between the four public universities in the Western Cape and um, the um, public sector um, in the region. Um, we're also starting to focus a little bit more on the way that universities should work together with the private sector um, to um, collaborate um, and, and, and to work towards um, a shared future. And then the other thing that um, we do at Czech is to <clears throat> think about um, higher education innovation and um, innovative ways to, um, to um, plan for um, future trends in higher education. Currently, we have um, a project funded by the Andrew Mellon Foundation, um, which is on uh, a topic that's been talked about, especially by um, Loretta, um, around decoloniality, the ways in which universities understand themselves, define themselves um, in South Africa, and um, also looking at the, um, the issue of the um, curriculum. And the other project that we're working on with um, quite substantial um, grant from the National Department of Higher Education and Training is um, a project on uh, dual higher education, which is a system that is um, practiced quite commonly in um, certain parts of Europe, like Germany and Austria, um, but which really um, um, introduces a, um, an innovative curricular model which is based on a much stronger, closer um, partnership between um, uh, industry and, and the business sector and universities, um, and where students actually spend time, um, uh, uh, they, 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 they rotate um, in a systematic way between the um, university and um, the, the, the business setting. And... Um, the um, industry uh, um, and employers are involved much more closely in the development of the curriculum and in um, thinking through what kinds of competencies um, and skills students need to learn, to develop. Um, and the um, university colleagues and um, colleagues from industry um, engage in, in, a, in a more frequent discussion um, about the um, the, the, the competences, the attributes that students need to develop. So um, that, that, I think, is a very interesting project. Um, we're working very closely in that project with the, um, the, the, the Western Cape government, city of Cape Town. They're on our advisory um, committees for that project. Um, we, we don't um, presuppose that that project um, will necessarily 
work in South Africa in the same way that it's working in Germany or Austria, but we do think that there is a definite need to think in um, innovative ways um, about how um, universities and employers can work together um, so that um, um, students can be better prepared for the um, for the working environment that they will be entering into after they after they graduate. So that's sort of, mm. I think, sort of in a nutshell what what Czech is trying to do. It's actually so interesting. In a nutshell, uh, yeah. Professor, that's yeah. quite a mouthful, yeah. rather than a nutshell, you know. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So okay. it's a uh, no. It's 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 wonderful to to hear how much you know work is an actual fact being done already on the sort of key parts of collaborative work as a solution for yeah. where we're at. You know, it's it's really exciting to hear that. Quite incidentally, yeah. um, Bush Radio, which is a partner in this project, but I was actually started in 1992, Ryan, if I have it correct. Um, okay. Which means, in actual fact, the consortium and yeah, and Bush might be celebrating. The next, you know, the 30 year anniversary well, together soon, you know. So, yeah. but, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, Professor, but no, thank you very much for that. I mean, I, yeah. I can't help but ask myself, um, you know, or, or tell myself that you would be expertly positioned to give us a sense of how it's going with the institutions in the province, you know. What is the sector like? Uh, you know, clearly from what you're saying, there's vibrant collaboration and so, well, but how's it going? You know, uh, you know, what's happening with our institutions? Well, um, um, you know, I, 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 I have to say that I, I don't stand at the coalface in, mm. um, in the universities, but I think that my impression is that um, the Western Cape is, is, is um, really very privileged um, to have um, four strong mm. and um, capable um, higher education institutions. Um, you know, we have... Um, um, Universities in the Western Cape that are um, leading global universities. If you, you know, sort of um, look at global ranking systems, we have, um, you know, um, leading global universities. Universities that are leading universities on the African continent. Um, I would say that 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 in general, our universities are in very good hands. I mean, Loretta was um, speaking about. Um, the, the caliber of our students, and I think that one also has to acknowledge um, the caliber of our university um, leadership and, and management. So, um, obviously, all our universities have challenges, um, and they have challenges, you know, that are tied to their histories. And you were talking at the start, you know, uh, Rudy, about narratives that universities tell about each other. Each university has its own particular trajectory, its own history, um, and it has to, you know, sort of negotiate that and and um, decide, you know, sort of um, how it wants to build on 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 that tradition. But you know, I, I mean, um, I don't want to sort of lift any particular university out, but I think it's the the journey of. Um, that, uh, for instance, a university like, like the University of the Western Cape has engaged in, the way that it has really shed um, the, 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 the kind of role that it was supposed to play, mm. you know, sort of under the apartheid regime, and has really, um, uh, really sort of um, reimagined itself and repositioned itself, is actually quite phenomenal. Um, and I think that you know we we, we sort of have to acknowledge um, you know uh, the, the the way in, in in which our universities are faced um, 
very very specific challenges. We we talked earlier about um, inequities in the system, um, and and I think that a university like the Western Cape. You know, with the Western Cape, it still suffers from the legacy of an mm. um, uh, uh, unjust and inequitable past. But it's 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 made um, tremendous strides. Um, CPUT, I, I think, has um, uh, had to deal with um, a very difficult merger um, between two um, um, former institutions. Um, creating a, a new integrated um, culture. Um, it's a it's a large, complex university with multiple campuses, um, and and um, I think you know sort of it's 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 it also deals with with um, very complex issues in terms of um, expectations from its students. But um, again, I think it plays a leading role um, in. Um, Providing um, very important educational opportunities for our for the students in our region as well as the field. So, you know, I I, I think that um, in general, it's it's, it's uh, you know the the public higher education sector in the Western Cape is doing well. Um, what what uh, what what yeah. uh, what strikes me as you as you share uh, and you know is is to really get an understanding that our institutions are doing well together, but each of our institutions really has its own unique set of circumstances and contributions yeah. and offering. And even though there would be similar subjects and faculties and so, we have sort of a diversity of communities and and and, and institutions that make it you know possible for all of us in our diversities and so forth to. Act Actually, access our education, and that is yeah. really exciting. I, you know, one can't sort of step, yeah. step you know, uh, away from that. So, thank you for sharing yes. that, Professor. Yes. I, yes. I was just indicated that I just let me know, but we have to actually finish up, you know, in three or four minutes. And I feel I like you. an apology you. because you're you. sharing so so much uh, rich information. But if yeah. I if you if I could sort of sort of hop along and just ask you specifically um, regarding what you think would be the most you know, not prominent, but the most urgent questions um, that we should be asking ourselves in higher education at this point. Considering all the challenges that we face in any case prior to the pandemic, but all the implications of the uh, pandemic, not only sort of methodologically or technically or so, but also sort of epistemologically, you know, what, you know, the, the deep shifts in, in the world and the context that we engage in higher education. Considering all of that, what would you sort of indicate as the most urgent questions, if you will, or problems that we well, need to unpack and work with? Uh, I'll try to be. I'll try to be very brief. Um, firstly, I think the um, um, the, the, the future. Um, let's talk about the future world of work. But mm-hmm. um, if I talk about the future world of work, I think that as a society we face tremendous challenges, which we uh, really don't have the answers to. Um, you know, artificial intelligence. Genetic engineering, mm. um, the kind of um, things that we can do um, with um, with new techno- technological capabilities, mm. huge ethical questions that we're going to have ethical to answer, yeah. and and we're going to have to come together in transdisciplinary and in inter- interdisciplinary teams and 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 work at these challenges. Mm. We're going to have to, you know, um, uh, try to. Um, it, 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 we, we need to move away from the idea that, that, that what students come to university for 
is to is to get a lot of knowledge because right. what they actually will be coming to university for is to know how to negotiate an extremely complex world which is embedded in extremely mm. complex mm. ethical issues mm. um, and they have to find their way there. So knowledge, they'll be able to find knowledge anywhere. Knowledge will be, but actually information will be ubiquitous. What they will need to be able to do is turn that information into right. useful knowledge. Right. They, right. They, they will need to be people who can navigate their way through knowledge. That's got huge implications for the way that we think about assessments and that mm. we sort of teach our students. So, you know, um, the, 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 the time of the sage on the stage is, mm. is, is gone. The sage um, on the stage but, has yeah, left. But, but, but the, but <laughs> Brilliant the time, professor. But the time of the facilitator of knowledge, yeah. the person who does what, what Ahmed was talking about, who engages yeah. with students in smaller, intensive learning environments right, right. and teaches them to think critically, to know how to analyze problems. Those are the kind of issues that we're going to need, mm. sort of, um, and qualities that we're going to need to instill in our students. Mm. Um, to be flexible. People are going to have multiple careers. Um, a big mm. question going forward is um, how important is it still to have a, a formal degree mm. of three mm. or four mm. or five years? What about mm. micro-credentialing? Mm. What about the fact that you learn on the go? Now, Thank you so much. It. Thank you. Okay. We're going to speak to okay. you another time, I'm sure. Definitely. There's so much to talk sure. about in this space. You're most welcome. Okay. Have a good evening, Thank Professor. You. Thank okay, you so much. Thanks. Okay, bye. That was Professor Martin Oosthuizen of Czech, uh, CEO of Czech Executive Director, and he was giving us a future, look into the future of uh, higher education, where the sector is going, what we can expect to happen in the future. That was us in conversation with uh, with uh, Professor Ahmed Bauer earlier on, uh, Professor Loretta Ferris after that, and now Professor Professor Martin Oosthuizen uh, with the Rudy. Uh, Base of the Cornerstone Institute, Executive Dean, thank you so much for your facilitation, for all those questions. We're going to have to leave it there. Hope to see you next week, right here. This podcast is proudly brought to you by Cornerstone. Learn to change the world.